Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Trigger warning for discussions of suicide. On September 11, 2001, the Twin Towers of the Trade Center in New York City fell in an act of terrorism that shocked Americans across the country. A week later, someone put five letters contaminated with anthrax spores into a mailbox in Trenton, New Jersey, addressed to NBC, CBS, ABC, the New York Post, and the National Enquirer buildings. To the individuals responsible for handling mail at these locations, the letters were strange but not worth taking seriously. The letter to Tom Brokaw at NBC read, 9-11-01. This is next. Take penicillin now. Death to America. Death to Israel. Allah is great. It also appeared to contain a mixture of brown sugar and sand, which NBC News assistant Casey Chamberlain dumped into the trash. In fact, the letters were so forgettable, written off as nothing more than hoaxes or an attempt to get into the news in a shattered post-9-11 world, or whatever the thought was, when photo editor Robert Stevens at the publisher of National Enquirer, American Media, and Boca Raton, was first hospitalized on October 2nd with pneumonia, and then a diagnosis of anthrax was determined the following day, authorities publicly announced they believed the source was likely from soil or a farm animal since Stevens was an outdoorsman. Secretly, however, federal agents were already investigating the possibility that the exposure was an act of terrorism. The same day that Stevens was hospitalized, a 53-year-old EPA scientist and former BioWare researcher named Dr. Ayad Assad was questioned by the FBI. Assad was suspected because he'd filed an age discrimination suit against the Army for dismissing him from a biowarfare lab, and someone had tipped off the FBI that he might be a terrorist. The letter accusing Assad knew about his background and training, the floor of the building he worked on, details about his sons and his home, and even what train he took to work. It also warned the FBI to stop him because the writer claimed they'd heard Assad say he had a vendetta against the U.S. government and that if anything happens to him, he told his sons to carry on. Now, like Assad... carry on the plan? Yeah. Like, yeah. the quote-unquote plan? Okay, okay. Yeah, the plan. Yeah. Not, like, carry on, like... Yeah, keep calm keep and carry trucking. on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Assad was cleared of the accusations, but this would only be one of the first interviews conducted to sniff out terrorists in relation to anthrax. On October 5th, Stevens, at 63 years old, died from inhalational anthrax. His death was the first inhalational anthrax death in the U.S. in 25 years. But what is anthrax? Now, I can recall the anthrax attacks. Like, I remember pretty vividly when all this was going on. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize they happened so close to 9-11. I didn't remember that either. 
I remember them both happening. I mm-hmm. was a freshman in high school, but I didn't, yeah. I remember the anthrax attacks happening because I remember everybody was, like, afraid to open their mail. Yeah, yeah. It made everyone across the country, like, it was all very East Coast, but it made everyone very nervous to open their mm-hmm. mail. And mm-hmm. I remember that, and I remember the talk of, like, anthrax and, like, you know, the heating ducts and all of that right. that would come later after this but like i did not recall it being a week after 9 11 you know like yeah i didn't either i think we were all just in fucking shock like yeah totally totally <laughs> and then also like i i was never told what anthrax was and so like i know I, I, I just it was... knew it was dangerous right a dangerous substance that's all i really knew like mm-hmm. And it sounds scary, too, in the name. Anthrax? Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's why there's a band called Anthrax. Called Anthrax, yeah. <laughs> like, it's but, intimidating and bossy. Right. And so I thought it was like a powder chemical poison, but it's not. Okay. Anthrax is a gram-positive spore-forming bacteria known as Bacillus anthracis, although the Bacillus genus has 70 species, so it's kind of a wide, like, umbrella. The bacilli form spores which can live in soil for decades. It is very hardy in soil. And if the spores are introduced to an animal host, they produce vegetative bacilli and rapidly multiply within the host and create a lethal anthrax toxin. So it's not lethal until it finds a host? It's not lethal until the spores form a toxin. Okay. And so when we start talking in a bit about people who study anthrax there's going to be dry anthrax and there's going to be liquid anthrax and there's going to be spore anthrax which i think is the dry anthrax usually when it's in the lab and then there's vegetative anthrax and very very few people work with those dry spores because that is what will get into your body or get onto your skin and kill you okay and you can only become infected with anthrax by coming into contact with either these bacilli or the spores. It's not contagious. So there's three routes of administration for exposure. There's cutaneous, and that's actually where the word anthrax comes from. It's, it's Greek for coal-like, and you get this very black skin wound. Mm. That's where anthracis comes from. But then there's gastrointestinal anthrax and inhalational anthrax. In cutaneous anthrax, spores germinate in the skin and soft tissues, and then the toxin incubates there, sometimes in as little as 12 hours, and it produces local swelling, followed by ulceration of the infected site, and then it dries into that black, dark, coal-looking scab. This scab falls off after one to two weeks, and most people never develop septicemia, even without antibiotics. However, with antibiotics, the total mortality rate for this kind of infection is less than 1%. So it's pretty survivable for anthrax. Mm. In gastrointestinal anthrax, spores germinate in the GI tract, usually after the bacilli are introduced into the body from the undercooked flesh of infected animals. Mm. This type of exposure can cause oral ulcers, ulcers of the pharynx behind the nose and mouth, and ulcers or scabbing of the colon, stomach, duodenum, and terminal ileum, as well as edema and sepsis. So, like, pretty nasty stuff if you get Yeah, that sounds rough. That sounds rough. Symptoms of this will present with abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and shitting blood, as well as anorexia and fever. Hmm. And as bad as... (laughs) Yeah, very rough times. Very rough times. (laughs) As rough as that is. Inhalational anthrax is so much worse. 
It is oh. the, the most aggressive kind, and it is almost always fatal within a few days without treatment. In this case, spores are inhaled and deposited in the alveoli before getting transported to the lymph nodes of the body, which is not where you want this shit to go. No. <laughs> <laughs> they germinate and cause hemorrhagic lymphodentitis. So, like, you start bursting in your limbs. Yeah. The vegetative right. bacilli then spread through the blood and the lymphatic system and cause septicemia. Okay, yeah, arguably worse. Arguably worse. <laughs> arguably worse. Usually people experience inhalational anthrax in two stages, where the first presents with seemingly innocuous flu-like symptoms, including fever, fatigue, and cough, and this is around two to five days after exposure. The first stage only lasts about 48 hours, however, and then progresses into severe and acute inability to breathe, narrowed airways, worsened fever, dizziness, headaches, and then the skin begins to turn blue from lack of oxygen. Mm. Without treatment, the inability to breathe only gets worse, the heart rate increases, and the infected person will become disoriented, after which they may fall into a coma and die. Approximately 50% of inhalational anthrax victims will also develop hemorrhagic meningitis. Yeah. Even even worse. Yeah. But I will say that it is possible if cutaneous or GI anthrax gets to a really severe state, you can actually get that you can actually get that hemorrhagic meningitis with those two forms as well. Oh, so that's the lucky card we get to draw. Yeah. Will we yeah. get the hemorrhagic men meningitis? Say that <laughs> fucking ten times fast. <laughs> Now, the really crazy part about this inhalational anthrax is that this kind of exposure can have germination happen as far out as 60 days after you're exposed. So you can, like, think that you got exposed, you're waiting for the flu-like symptoms, and you're like, okay, nothing's happening, so I think I'm in the clear. And then two months later, you start to get those flu-like symptoms, and then death can occur within a week of becoming fully symptomatic. It kills very quickly. But it kills quickly, but the onset can take such a long time. Yeah. Yeah, it's insane. That's crazy. Yeah. So anthrax is a zoonotic disease well described in the texts of antiquity. It is possible that the plague of Athens was an epidemic of inhalational anthrax. And in the 18th century, an outbreak of anthrax killed half the sheep in Europe. In Victorian England, it was known as wool sorters disease, although human infection is more often a result of exposure to goat hair or alpaca than to wool and sheep. The sheep get such a bad rap. I know. During their research on germ theory, Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur both studied anthrax in the 1870s. Koch discovered the complete life cycle for the bacillus and determined that spores could remain viable for long periods, even in unfavorable conditions. He also realized that the bacillus could be transmitted from one animal to another, which would put him on the track to understanding transmission of infectious disease on the whole. Pasteur inoculated 25 cattle with an anthrax vaccine he created in his own attempt at understanding disease transmission and prevention. Then, he inoculated this group and a control group of unvaccinated cattle with a virulent strain of Bacillus anthracis, and all of the unvaccinated cattle died, and all the vaccinated cattle lived. So this is 
one of wildly the successful vaccines. and yes. wildly successful yes yeah wildly successful yeah the first human vaccine however was not developed until the 1950s it was developed by the u.s army chemical corps which helped to decrease anthrax cases overall especially among animal processing workers and farmers although inhalational anthrax cases maintained a death rate of approximately 85 percent even after this vaccine the first vaccine was replaced by a new one in 1970, and this one was a little bit better. There have been occasional outbreaks worldwide since that new vaccine, but in the United States, fatalities have been few and far between. 18 cases were reported between 1900 and 1978, two were lab-related, and 16 were fatal. Are any of these cases in that period of time, were any of them malicious, or were they all farm worker? or packing plant, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there was no, there was never anthrax used as a bioweapon in the United States during this period. Okay. Yeah. There have been a few non-fatal outbreaks in the U.S. since the creation of the newer vaccine, including a 2006 case where a drum maker in New York contracted inhalational anthrax from goat skin, and a 2009 case where a woman got gastrointestinal anthrax in Connecticut from animal skin drums. However, the last death from anthrax in the U.S. prior to the 2001 attacks was an artistic weaver who became sick from contaminated yarn imported from Pakistan and died from inhalational anthrax. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. With proper treatment now and this newer vaccine, mortality rates for all forms of anthrax are now at around 45%. So can the, like, does the vaccine have to be done preemptively or can it also be used as kind of like an antidote i believe it is only used preemptively and okay. if you believe that you are infected with anthrax as i'll talk about you have to take a course of antibiotics okay now following stevens's death in october of 2001 the fbi began its investigation through its miami new york newark new haven baltimore and washington dc offices and the Amerithrax Task Force was established, comprised of FBI special agents and United States postal inspectors. But more letters were sent, which I also don't remember more letters being sent. Oh, I remember this. The, these are the letters that I remember more so. What do you remember about it? I remember them going to the senators. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I remember the senators being attacked and... Mm -hmm. And yes, that like I I don't remember the news ones as much as I remember the senators. Mm -hmm. On October fifteenth, a letter to Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle with a return address from a fourth grade class in Franklin Park, New Jersey, was opened in the Hart Senate Office Building in Washington D.C. The letter read: O nine eleven O one, you cannot stop us. We have this anthrax. You die now. Are you afraid? Death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. The envelope also contained a white powder, and so that wing of the building was completely evacuated and cleaned. Tests conducted at Fort Detrick, Maryland, confirmed the powder was a virulent form of anthrax bacteria, and the next day, everyone in the southeast tier of the building who shared a ventilation system with Dashiell's office were tested by health officials and given the antibiotic ciprofloxacin as a preventative measure. 
Meanwhile, an NBC employee in New York City and the seven-month-old son of an ABC News freelance producer in Manhattan both developed cutaneous anthrax infections and four more exposures were reported. Now people were beginning to really panic. As demands from the CDC for ciprofloxacin increased, Bayer responded by increasing production at its Connecticut factory from 40 hours a week to 24-7 and increased the number of machines in production just for their antibiotic. The government wanted enough to cover 12 million people for 60 days. Like, I think this is part of the reason everyone across the country was so worried that anybody could receive this because even the government was like anybody could receive this we need enough for literally everybody in everybody the country. right like w- we're panicking now like this yeah. isn't the like don't panic it's like no everybody's panicking we're yeah. panicking you panic now you panic now we all panic <laughs> why aren't you worried you should be worried <laughs> yeah yeah Employees at the Brentwood Postal Facility in Washington, D.C. were told not to panic, however, and to continue working. Many of them had already come to realize that the letter sent to the senator had to have been just one of the 3.5 million pieces of mail that passed through their facility each day. These letters were not sealed in any special way and contained loose anthrax spores that were very possibly floating in the air they breathed and settling on the surfaces where they worked. How early can you test for anthrax exposure? In a, in a like, person? In a person. Yeah, like in a person. Like you you were saying that there's that like 60-day incubation period. Mm-hmm. Would somebody test positive for exposure before that 60, like before it incubates? I think so. I think if okay. you do swab testing on the inside of your mouth, I think is how they do it. Gotcha. I think so, yeah. Okay. So the letter that was sent to the senator was postmarked on October 9th and likely came through Brentwood on October 11th. But the danger had not been revealed to everybody for another four days. Authorities told workers that there was a very low risk of spore release and refused to shut down the facility and did not offer their employees the same testing given to employees at the Senate building. And yet, they watched as investigators in hazmat suits examined the plant they worked in and had been working in, completely unprotected for days. On October 16th, a postal worker named Joseph Kersine Jr. went to the emergency room thinking his flu-like symptoms were caused by food poisoning. He was treated for dehydration and nausea and was sent home. Two days later, another postal worker named Thomas Morris Jr. went to his PCP also complaining of flu-like symptoms and told his doctor outright that he believed he'd been exposed to anthrax. His doctor performed a swab but told Morris it was likely just the flu virus. He was told to return home and take Tylenol. He never received the results of the swab because both men were taken to the hospital on October 21st when they both worsened in their homes and both men died. Leroy Richmond was also infected at Brentwood and went to the on-site nurse on October 19th, but she told him it was a low-grade fever and nothing to worry about. The doctor there also told Richmond that he did not seem very sick. And this is the on-site doctors that are aware that there was anthrax that came through the facility. So Richmond took himself to the emergency room, insisting that his symptoms not be dismissed. 
When the attending physician showed up, she began treating him for anthrax preventatively before test results were back. And this is what saved his life. What a concept. <laughs> I know. So he was treated for four weeks with his daughter double-checking everything with another physician she knew personally, and Richmond was released from the hospital on November 13th. Brentwood workers couldn't help but notice the vast disparity between how the people in the Hart Senate building were treated compared to how they were treated. Even the dogs on Capitol Hill were tested and treated. But the... <sighs> Working class, primarily black population at Brentwood was ignored until they began dying. And at that point, they're too far gone. Like the two men who previously, or the two people who previously died, like... I mean, they might have still been able to get some help if they had been starting on an antibiotic regimen. But like, yeah, you know, by the time you start exhibiting flu-like symptoms, like the clock is really counting down. Right. Hospital and government authorities tried to explain their actions by saying that the postal workers in New York and Boca Raton did not show any signs of exposure, and they were trying to be sparing in prescribing Cipro. Not that that makes any sense, because are we sure no one we're in Boca Raton... we 24 7 hours a day, too, on producing it. I know, I know. So it's like, like we have it. <laughs> we have it. Why are we being skimpy with it? Mm-hmm. On October 26th, a U.S. State Department mailroom staffer was hospitalized for anthrax. On October 28th, a New, a New Jersey Post employee tested positive. And so at that point, everyone is aware of the danger of anthrax being sent through the mail. But they didn't have any idea in early October. They caught these two in late October. But early October, nobody's looking for anything that, like, your flu-like symptoms are progressing. Right. And... The investigation would later show that the batches of anthrax material varied between the September and October mailings. So the September batch was multicolored and granular. Like I said, it looked like mm -hmm. brown sugar. Or, yeah. While the October batch was a finer powder of uniform color and smaller particle size that appeared more like baby powder. Mm. It was also more lethal. And so there's, you know, maybe they didn't as expose as many people with as lethal of anthrax in the beginning, but we just don't really know. Right. Furthermore, government authorities were inconsistent in their approach because there were people from the Capitol building who were not working when the letter was opened, but worked in the building during other times, and they were given super preventatively. Brentwood wasn't shut down until 10 days after the letter came through, and only then were the employees told that they'd like they'd <gasps> been exposed. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Nice. So Thomas Morris's son filed a $37 million lawsuit against Kaiser Permanente, alleging that doctors failed to provide the standard of care and were racially biased against Morris in sending him home without antibiotics. That suit was settled in 2002. Do Ultimate we know what the conclusion was? I mean, I think they paid out. I don't they think did. That, yeah. I don't know that they paid out and like admitted liability, but they paid paid out. Yeah. Okay. Ultimately, ten thousand people were considered at risk of exposure to anthrax from the letters. Forty three people tested positive, twenty two known people were sickened, eleven with inhalational anthrax and eleven with cutaneous anthrax, and five deaths were recorded. The last two deaths were the most difficult to pinpoint the exposure source, which is another reason that I think these numbers are all underestimates. On October 31st, an employee at the Manhattan Eye, Ear, and Throat Hospital, 61-year-old Kathy Noyun, 
died from inhalational anthrax. Three weeks later, a 94-year-old woman from Connecticut named Adelie Lundgren became the fifth and final known victim of inhalational anthrax. Neither woman appeared to have come in contact with contaminated mail prior to their deaths. Hmm. During the mostly quiet month of November, the Amerithrax investigation continued. The EPA took 462 samples from the American Media Building in Florida, including from surfaces, air filters, and vacuum cleaner bags, and found 84 samples positive for contamination. This is despite the previous statements from officials stating that anthrax spores were unlikely to be widespread in environments <laughs> the letters passed through. The FBI was also accused of missteps in their investigation, which had yet to produce any leads more than a month after the first announced death. Physical evidence was severely lacking because the letters were pre-stamped and sealed with tape, no fingerprints were found on any of the letters that were recovered, and some letters, like the ones sent to American media in Boca Raton, were never recovered. Northern Arizona University microbiologist Paul Keim was brought into the FBI investigation because Keim had colleagues that he worked with at the CDC, and the university had one of the largest collections of anthrax strains from around the world. Keim was actually one of the analysts who fingerprinted the anthrax strain released by the Om Shinrikyo cult over Japan mm. and found it to be the non-lethal stern strain used to vaccinate animals. Northern Bumblers, they were... Bumblers, indeed. <laughs> Northern Arizona University was also useful to the FBI because it provided a private lab that could go to court and testify, which the FBI and CDC lab personnel couldn't legally do. Through novel DNA fingerprinting, Kimes' team determined that the anthrax in the letters was the Ames strain. This strain of anthrax has only been found in nature once, by a cattle rancher in Texas in 1981, that sample was sent to the Army to be developed in the United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, or U.S. AMRID, in Fort Detrick, Maryland, as a highly virulent strain to test vaccines against. Mm. And there were only about 18 selected organizations around the world that had access to this strain that they sent out from U.S. AMRID for testing. The international strains were at one lab in Canada, one in Sweden, and one in Great Britain. Moreover, another expert at U.S. AMRID named Dr. Bruce Ivins, who was working to improve anthrax vaccines and had himself worked to develop the AIMS strain, analyzed the samples from the letters and found they were very, very pure. Definitely laboratory grade. And the word weaponized was even used at one point when it seemed that the samples were possibly chemically coated with silicon to be more deadly. Although this turned out to not be the case. What would make that more deadly? I think that if it's coated with silicon on the outside, it allows it to be loftier, maybe because it's more mm. staticky. I'm not sure why it's loftier, but it doesn't clump together and it can just really poof. You know, glitter gotcha. bomb itself out of a letter. Okay, gotcha. The Bush but White House. But that wasn't House, the case. But that wasn't no, the case. That wasn't the case. There did there was silicon in it, but it was inside of it, and that will come up later. Okay. The Bush White House had been pressuring FBI Director Robert Mueller to blame Osama bin Laden for the attacks, but that theory wasn't at all viable with this purity and strain of anthrax. The only place this could have been made was somewhere in the U.S. with very sophisticated technology. 
The FBI officials weren't sure who they could trust with fingers being pointed to the very community they were asking for help from. And yet, the Bureau allowed Iowa State University to destroy 100 vials worth of anthrax spores they'd collected over 70 years because they feared they'd have security issues now that the AIM strain was implicated. Only after this misstep did the FBI issue a subpoena to laboratories to get the names of workers and researchers who had been vaccinated against anthrax, people with the greatest access to it, and who would be the most willing to handle it for nefarious purposes. But they were not interviewing everyone that experts thought they should have. Perhaps they were excluding people based on their location, though. The letters were postmarked from Trenton, New Jersey, so investigators seemed to be focusing on the Rutgers University in New Jersey and other nearby institutions. U.S. AMRID and the employees there were suspected, including Dr. Bruce Ivins. He told authorities that U.S. AMRID wasn't capable of creating such highly purified anthrax with their instrumentation, but he did name people that he suspected may have been behind the attacks. The first that he named were researchers at the Dugway Proving Grounds, an army installation in Utah which was the only facility to work with dry powder anthrax and who had samples of the AIM strain. Ivins also implicated a former colleague, Joseph Farkas, who had worked with Ivins to develop the next-gen anthrax vaccine, lived near Trenton, and who had bullied Ivins during his time at U.S. AMRID. Investigators followed this lead but found no evidence that Farkas could be involved with the letters. While Ivans did have other names, the anthrax expert community was a small one that hadn't had much going on prior to the attacks other than working on a better vaccine. At the time, the anthrax vaccine frequently caused swollen arms, joint pain, and knots at the injection site. It also was administered in six shots given over 18 months and after that, yearly boosters were still required. When the military mandated these vaccines for soldiers in 1998, many enlisted people refused to get it despite risking disciplinary action because of all of these side effects Mm. and this timeline. Now that their services were demanded of them by the FBI and CDC, however, U.S. AMRID put 70 people on three daily shifts to support the Amerithrax investigation. So they suddenly became this booming part of the U.S. AMRID. Mm -hmm. The strain of the workload and the general atmosphere of living in late 2001 at a biochemical research lab led to a miraculous accident that would help to further identify the source of the anthrax in the letters. One of the lead scientists at U.S. AMRID was John Ezel, and his main lab tech was Terry Abshire. Ezel instructed Abshire to culture the anthrax sent to Senator Daschle so it would form colonies that could be interpreted for information about where they came from. Normally, Abshire would culture these kinds of samples for 20 hours because allowing them to grow for longer than that encouraged spore growth, and almost no one in the community actually studied spores, even if they were vaccinated against anthrax, because this was so much more dangerous. But this time, Abshire let the cultures go for at least 48 hours before checking on them. She immediately called Ezels to suit up for the hot suite so he could see the abnormality of the colonies that made this culture very, very distinct. Ezel agreed that Abshire found something important that could unlock genetic information about the anthrax sent in the letters. Specifically, she found that it had a unique morphology, meaning that the shape and color of the colonies weren't flat 
rounded contours of the typical bacillus and thoracis. Rather, they were these rough, wrinkled colonies that had a yellow-gray discoloration. Ezel told Abshire to perform the same procedure with an extended incubation time on the anthrax sample sent to the New York Post to see if it had the same unique morphology. Abshire's results were the same with this sample, which meant that figuring out the source was going to be a little easier because now you have this unique morphology that you can look for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ezel passed this information on to the FBI, and Abshire shared the findings with Ivan's, but she'd gone another step further. She took the original 1981 sample of the Ames strain, the first found in nature and sent to Fort Detrick, and she examined the morphs and found that they were similar to what she was getting in the sample from the letters. On January 23, 2002, Ivans handed Abshire's photographs over to FBI agents, along with a caption he'd written to give them context. Ames strain from Greg Nudson's culture collection at U.S. Amrid. Similar in appearance to Bacillus anthracis colonies from male. This contextualization conveniently left out the fact that two people had received the original Ames strain Abshire used, the long-since-retired Greg Nudson and Bruce Ivins himself. To anyone looking in on the situation, it would appear that Ivins was trying to point suspicion away from himself. Anyone would want to, of course, but Ivans may have had more reason than others. Now that the new year was underway and there were still no leads, the head of the FBI's field office emailed all 30,000 members of the American Society for Microbiology to ask for their help in identifying a perpetrator that was likely hiding among them, and also reminded them that the FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service were offering a $1 million reward to anyone who could turn over information for the investigation. Upon receiving this email, Nancy Hagwood instantly thought of Bruce Ivins. She'd met him years before, around 1976, when she was a doctoral candidate at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Ivins was a postdoc researcher, and his wife was working as a registered nurse. She'd found Ivins cloyingly nice, asking her multiple times about her former sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma, after he'd seen her wearing a shirt with the initials, and she also found him annoyingly intrusive. And she had the right idea about Ivins, but didn't know that his behavior was a bit more than just annoying. See, he'd insisted on helping her and her husband move into their new house, but afterwards he would drive past it at night just to get a glimpse of her through the windows. Certified creep. Mm. In 1978, the Ivanses moved to Maryland, and documents taken from his counselor's files would later reveal that he'd attributed his GI symptoms, sadness, and insomnia after the move to the lack of Hagwood in his life, and that he'd considered poisoning her to death. Oh. A lab notebook of Hagwood's went missing, which was not a small matter, and police actually got involved in this. But no suspect was ever found and no arrests were made. The notebook reappeared in a mailbox on the UNC campus, and Hagwood believed that Ivins was responsible, but she had no way to prove it. Then, on September 21, 2001, before the anthrax letters were known to the public, Ivins emailed Hagwoods out of the blue. Apparently, Ivins had kept tabs on her and would occasionally call her or send her notes. And she didn't discourage any of it because she felt bad for him. 
And since he was in Maryland and she was in Seattle, she didn't think that he actually posed a threat to her. This email read, Here at US AMRID, we are constantly getting security updates. And since we are on the primary biological warfare research center in this country, we are all more than a bit on edge. During the Gulf War, we worked very long days and were on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I won't be surprised if that becomes the case again. And sure, in a time following a terror attack on his side of the country in a government lab, maybe he was nervous about the possibility of a biochemical attack. But it was kind of unlikely it would be like that. Soldiers hadn't liked the mandated anthrax vaccine in 1998, and many had pushed back because of the side effects, but that was still the vaccine we used. In reality, Ivans's work on the next-gen vaccine was on the verge of being canceled for bigger and better projects and more pressing concerns. Ivans again emailed Hagwood in November 2001, along with 16 other family members and acquaintances. Hi, all. We are taking some photos today of blood agricultures of the now infamous AIM strain of Bacillus anthracis. Attached was a photo showing Ivans in a hot suite, handling eight petri dishes of what appeared to be live anthrax cultures with his bare hands. When Hagwood considered all of this, it gave her enough of a gut feeling to call the number for contacting the FBI with a tip and let them know she suspected Bruce Ivins may have been behind the letter attacks. On February 15, 2002, the FBI issued subpoenas to all the labs in the U.S. with the AIM strain and required them to submit a sample so they could compare morphologies. Bruce Ivins submitted his sample from a flask labeled RMR-1029, originally procured in October 1997. This was the sample that Ivins had personally taken from that first strain sent to Fort Detrick by the cattle rancher. He'd washed the spores to purify them of dead anthrax cells and other debris, and then mixed the spores he'd grown and prepared at U.S. Amrid for the purpose of creating a next-gen vaccine. So this was very much his batch. In his notes for this batch, he wrote that it contained at least 99% pure spores and no clumping, which is something that you want in terms of purity and in terms of being able to, like, colonize it. But also, it makes it so that it's a lot deadlier and lethal if something mm. were to happen with it. He then accounted for this batch in the Army's reference material receipt record as inventory number 1029, hence RMR 1029. And this created its ever-essential chain of custody form that tracked everyone who ever touched it throughout its lifetime. This chain of custody reflected the importance of the batch as a resource to the anthrax studying community, including whenever Ivan's shared batch samples with other scientists. When Ivan's sample was being examined in 2002, however, the scientists conducting the morph comparisons found he hadn't followed protocol for submission and had sent the sample in the wrong kind of test tube. Ezel rejected the sample and ordered Ivans to resubmit a proper one. He did so, but not until April of 2002. And I'm speculating here, but it's possible that Ivans submitted his sample at this time because of the drama unfolding at U.S. Amrit at the same time. Word had gotten out that two junior colleagues found a flask of liquid anthrax that had some spilling over the edge of the flask and drying. Mm meaning there was the possibility that this dry stuff would create spores 
the spores would become present all over the hot suite that they were in. They could possibly have been contaminated, even though they were geared up and vaccinated. But anthrax is scary. They were concerned. And so they went to the infirmary. They were given booster vaccines and Cipro as a precaution. And that really normally would have been the end of it. Except that Bruce Ivins decided to stir up some drama, either to distract from his sample resubmission or because he knew it would cause delays to the testing or because he wanted his behavior to look less suspicious. I really don't know what the motivation was here. See, in November or December of 2001, Ivins detected apparent anthrax spores in the personal office he shared with two other scientists and which others, including unvaccinated personnel, would sometimes visit. Without telling anyone about it or making any sort of record of the incident, he sprayed down all the surfaces that were contaminated with diluted bleach and wiped them off with paper towels. Ivins discussed this new incident in the hot suite with his supervisor and suggested doing swabs of other areas in the U.S. Amrid cold sites. His supervisor, Patricia Worsham, advised him not to proceed without the permission of the bacteriology division chief, but also said that she didn't think it seemed necessary since the incident happened inside of a hot suite and, like, it was pretty much over. But Ivans went ahead with his swabbing without consulting that bacteriology division chief, and he found that 25% of the cold area surface points he tested were positive for anthrax contamination, including the men's changing room and his personal office. He recorded his findings this time and then bleached the contaminated areas and told his supervisor about the findings. So now the supervisor decides it's time to alert chain of command because now there's a known danger. Right. Now it we was, know for sure it is a problem. Yeah, like 25%, like, ugh, that's uh, not good. Yeah. <laughs> so it was only now that Ivan's admitted to the first instance of cold area contamination that he'd found in late 2001, which he downplayed the importance of in light of this widespread contamination. A new building-wide survey of cold areas was conducted, and anthrax spores were found in three locations. Again, the men's changing room, the molding of a pass box for exchanging items to the outside from the contaminated suite, and Ivan's shared office. In his office, spores were detected on his desk, his lab tech's computer, and in an air vent. Army officials still declared the amount of contamination low and posing no serious health risk. But it still made the news and an informal army investigation was launched, which did not involve questioning Ivans about the first round of decontamination he'd conducted in his office in 2001. And it's because that was just written off as Ivans wanting to not create a PR spectacle, which now we have this time. Right. The focus of Ivan's as a person of interest shifted because the FBI's investigation had shifted on to somebody else. So despite all of this going down, they're not even looking at him. Interesting. Stephen J. Hatfill worked as a physician researcher at U.S. Amrit from 1997 to 1999. And although he was honest in interviews about what he knew regarding anthrax, including the intricacies of what it would take to send through the mail... He primarily worked with the Ebola, Marburg, and monkeypox viruses. However, during his tenure, he had virtually unrestricted access to the Ames strain, was writing a novel in which a wheelchair user attacked Congress with a bacteria, 
And in 2001, he unsuccessfully sought a higher security clearance from the CIA and filled several prescriptions for Cipro around the same time as the letter attacks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, circumstantial shit. (laughs) Yes. But circumstantial be circumstantial in. Yeah. (laughs) Instead of doing a raid-type search... FBI agent Robert Roth chose to discreetly search Hatfield and called him up on June 24, 2002 to let him know the FBI wanted to speak with him the next day. Hatfield complied and chose to drive himself willingly to the FBI residence agency in Frederick. He had no reason to be suspicious, and even when he reached the office, he was reassured that the FBI simply wanted to verify whether Hatfell had anything to do with the letter attacks and eliminate him as a suspect, if possible. And this would also involve them searching his apartment now that they'd gotten him out of it. And Hatfell was like, okay, I guess that makes sense. Go ahead and eliminate me as a suspect. I'm not at my apartment. I give you permission to search. And while they were in there, they were going to swab the inside of his apartment. They were going to swab his car. But when the search started, things became less discreet. The media caught wind of the situation, probably because they sent a fucking helicopter to the guy's apartment <laughs> instead of, like, driving there. <laughs> that'll that'll definitely make things a little bit more noticeable. Yeah. And so swarms of cameras and journalists surrounded his apartment and pursued him as he made his way around town for lunch with the FBI agents. Hatfield, out at lunch, surrounded by media, was obviously upset. And so while they were sitting there talking, the agents offered for him to withdraw his consent for the search. So verbally, he did. He was like, yes, I don't want to do this anymore. Unfortunately, withdrawing his consent would mean that the agents would need a warrant from a judge to conduct the search. And doing that would make it look like Hatfell was uncooperative in documentation, and that could give the impression that he had something to hide. So, since he never officially withdrew his consent, he verbally gave permission back for the search to continue, and it did. And the media frenzy just got worse from there. They publicly named Hatfill as the target of the search and as the man the FBI had been scrutinizing for months, as though it was just him they'd been looking at. While it's true that Hatfill was a person of interest, as he would be called time and time and time again over the next few months, so much that it would consume his entire public identity, and there was a book about this period in his life called Person of Interest, he actually hadn't been employed by U.S. Amrit for over two years when the attacks happened. He stopped his employment there in 1999. So he didn't have access to the anthrax or a laboratory to study it during the time period in question. The FBI, I think they already have seen that they fucked up, but they're doing Mm -hmm. the search, and so they put him up in a local hotel room. They continue to search his apartment, his car, his storage space. They also search his girlfriend's apartment and car, and they come up with nothing. Yeah, I would be so fucking pissed. I would be pissed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And they don't detect anything. They don't detect anthrax anywhere. Okay. But with the investigation turning up no leads, people across the country were getting restless. Senators Daschle and Leahy called Agent Roth a caricature of an FBI agent. Mm. 
And a professor at the State University of New York named Barbara Hatch Rosenberg teamed up with a New York Times columnist named Nicholas D. Kristoff to try and get the word out on the investigation in order to light a fire under the FBI to get them to do more. But they don't really know a whole lot. Like, they know that Hatfield is a person of interest, right? And they know a little bit about his history. But so do they know about Ivan's? They don't know about Ivan's. Ivan's hasn't been publicly named. Oh, okay. So Rosenberg was sure that the whole attack was an inside job, and the naming of Hatfield publicly made it easy for her and Kristoff to run with a theory that they had on top of what they knew. Kristoff wrote columns for months about Hatfield under the pseudonym Mr. Z, saying that he had access to an isolated residence operated by American intelligence, saying also that he'd been caught having sex in a hot suite, and suggested that during his time in Zimbabwe, which he was in Zimbabwe, that he was part of an anthrax outbreak that sickened 10,000 farmers. So this mixture of speculation and misinformation made Hatfield's life a total nightmare, and it got worse when on August 13th, Kristoff finally admitted that his Mr. Z in all of his columns was in fact Stephen Hatfield. And elected officials instructed the FBI to fully investigate Kristoff's claims, which kept the microscope on Hatfield, even though he should have been eliminated months before because he hadn't had access to anthrax. So Hatfield endured bloodhounds pointing him out, like literal dogs coming up to him and like putting their hand, like paws on him. But Hatfield doesn't know what's going on, so he just like pets the dog. And it's like, no, he, the dog is saying that like you have anthrax <laughs> on you. Yeah. <laughs> and this turned out to be a misidentification on the dog's behalf. And he still ended up being terminated from his Justice Department funded paycheck Damn. with Louisiana State University. He was put on 24-hour surveillance by the FBI, and not discreetly. At one point, an agent stalking out his movements ran over Hatfield's foot with a car, and then Hatfield was issued a ticket for walking to create a hazard. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so Hatfield eventually hired a criminal defense lawyer who parsed through all of the supposed evidence the FBI investigators had against him and concluded that investigators were incompetent at best and had potentially biased their interview questions of potential eyewitnesses towards incriminating Hatfield. While Hatfield remained the FBI's number one person of interest through continued pressure from the ill-informed news media and possibly also those incompetent investigators, Bruce Ivins was himself doing quite well at this time. Oh. He kept himself involved in the investigation as much as possible, and in October 2002, US AMRID began working with the VaxGen company on a new anthrax vaccine funded by $101.2 million in government contracts. Holy shit. Yeah. Good funding. Very good funding. Uh, very good funding. <laughs> On March 14, 2003, Ivins was awarded the highest honor for non-uniformed personnel working alongside three other colleagues in a Pentagon ceremony. The decoration for exceptional civilian service was bestowed upon these individuals for their work on the next-gen anthrax vaccine and their contribution to the nation's defense against biological threats. Only five days after this award ceremony, President Bush publicly launched the Iraq War. 
Hatfield sued the Justice Department and the FBI on August 26, 2003, for leaking investigative information, firing Hatfield from Louisiana State University, and violating Hatfield's right to privacy. Privately, Hatfield was also suffering from unemployment, isolation from friends who were weary of the drama surrounding him, and worsening alcohol dependency. Things were not going to improve for him anytime soon, unfortunately, because the government chose to petition a federal judge to delay proceedings for the suit because they felt that it undermined the ongoing Amerithrax investigation. By late 2004, Paul Keim, Patricia Worsham, and the other scientists recruited to do their part in the, in the investigation found an apparent genetic match between the anthrax in the letters and a particular Ames batch. More testing was needed to verify the match, but they were fairly certain that the anthrax in the letters had come from Bruce Ivan's RMR-1029 batch. The FBI seized the flask from U.S. AMRED, and the researchers were able to verify their suspicions using the known samples from other U.S. AMRED scientists and scientists in New Mexico that the chain of custody showed Ivan's had shipped to them. These findings also revealed something about Ivan's behavior. It appeared that he had deliberately given them a false sample in April of 2002 when they'd asked him to resubmit a sample using the correct protocol. The sample he'd sent had not matched the anthrax in the letters, but after comparing the anthrax in the letters to the anthrax in the seized flask he should have sampled from, they found that that matched. Mm-hmm. Ivans had suspected that the investigation was tightening around him long before this breakthrough in 2004. In August of 2003, he'd somewhat casually told investigators that the April 2002 sample he'd resubmitted had been collected and prepared by two lab techs rather than by himself personally. The chain of custody for RMR-1029 showed that Ivans actually had conducted both sample collections himself. Six days after this conversation in 2003, Bruce hired a criminal defense lawyer. Mm. In March of 2005... FBI agents on the Amerithrax case were torn between fo focusing on Hatfield or Ivins. At an interview conducted at the end of the month with Ivins, in which his lawyer was not present, many of the questions focused on Hatfield's access to the RMR-1029 flask. Ivins was honest in his answers and informed investigators that Hatfield, based on his security permissions, never even worked in the same building as the RMR-1029 flask during his two years at U.S. Amrid, which, again, were still two years before the attacks. I was just going to say, he wasn't even... He doesn't <laughs> even go here. He doesn't even go here, <laughs> yeah. But Ivan's also told them that sometimes aliquots of the batch from the flask would have been available to Hatfield, so very, very small portions could have gone into the building where he worked, which left the possibility open to Hatfield being the perpetrator of the letter attacks. You know, kind of. Mm -hmm. In fact, according to Ivans, the security at U.S. Amrid was a lot more lax than most people would have thought back in 2001. However, Hatfield did not know how to handle anthrax, was not vaccinated against anthrax in 2001, and would have needed to grow a very large amount of anthrax from a very sw small al aliquot if they were to believe that he was even capable of doing any of it. Ivans, on the other hand, did not have an alibi for the time frame in which the letters were dropped into the Trenton mailbox, 
had been secretive about his swabbings and bleachings at U.S. Hamred and could not account for 220 milliliters of missing liquid anthrax from flask RMR 1029 that were not recorded on the chain of custody. Well, and he falsified the chain of custody by saying that other people mm-hmm. had provided the sample. Like, right. mm-hmm. this guy... Moreover, further investigation in 2005 brought more of Ivans's behavior into question. Because he was a government scientist with a security clearance, much was made of him being on the antidepressant Celexa. Like, if you have any sort of mental illness, like, they really don't want to give you a security clearance. And, like, I think that it's a little overblown, you know? Just yeah. a little bit. Like, you can be a on antidepressants bit. and still, like, be a functional person. Yes. But a review of Nancy Hagwood's tip to the FBI back in 2002 was made by new agents on the case, and they found something very interesting. Hagwood wrote about how Ivins had sent a letter to the Frederick News Post in 1983 strongly defending hazing rituals by Hagwood's former sorority, Kappa Kappa Gamma, and he sent this letter under Hagwood's name. Oh, weird. The letter was even used as a reference in the book Broken Pledges, The Deadly Rite of Hazing, and the author apparently did not realize that the letter wasn't written by Hagwood, but rather by Bruce Ivins. Ivins was obsessed not just with Hagwood, but with Kappa Kappa Gamma, like this national sorority as a whole, and new FBI agents realized that the sorority in New Jersey was located very, very close to the mailbox that had tested positive for anthrax spores and was likely the drop location. Further investigation by the FBI also revealed that Bruce Ivins had rented a post office box for years under the name Carl Scandella, which was the name of Hagwood's fiance when she knew Ivins in 1983. This guy really is a certified creep. Like, I was, like, joking, like, yeah, he drives by her house at night, you know. But, like, this is, no. Yeah. yeah. He needs to be on a list. Yeah. Yeah, he does. And it gets worse. I always say that. But it genuinely it gets worse. <laughs> Ivan suggested a new person of interest for the case on July 30th, 2005. John Ezel. In a letter to his lawyer, Ivans explained that FBI scientists tried to replicate the anthrax powder in the letters at the Dugway Proving Ground in Utah, but that the anthrax most closely resembled, quote, material which had been covertly made by Dr. John Ezel at U.S. Amrid, unquote. He also added this detail. Last November, Dr. Ezel told several people at a conference in Illinois that he would confess on his deathbed to being the anthrax letter perpetrator. No one else who attended this conference could corroborate this statement. And it appears to have been completely (laughs) fabricated by Ivans. Imagine. Yeah. (laughs) Not that it worked to shift focus away from him. By the end of 2006, the FBI had pretty much abandoned their investigation into any other suspect, including Stephen Hatfield, whose lawsuit was still pending, and they were focused singularly on Bruce Ivins. He was already a paranoid person, but now he felt the need to install a device that would detect bugs on his phone or tape recorders nearby, so it could detect both of those things. He also purchased a service that would let him know when his email recipients opened or forwarded his messages to them. And he told family members and colleagues that he suspected 
microbiologist Hank Heine of implicating him to the FBI, and in turn suggested that Heine was actually the sender of the letters. Like, it feels like he's kind of just naming every single person around him at some point. I was just going to say, like, who is it? Is it Dr. Ezel? Is it Heine? Like, who, who is it? Like, yeah. Yeah. He's literally, like, throwing noodles at the wall and seeing what sticks. Pretty like, much. It could have been that Ivans felt the noose of the investigation closing in on him. Or, like Hatfield, he was being driven crazy by being one of the men at the center of a six-year-long FBI investigation. What's more, the government funding that was revitalizing Ivan's research into the next-gen anthrax vaccine was cut at the end of 2006. Whatever Not the case. $101 million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's not, he's not really getting a whole lot out of stuff at this point. No. But whatever the case was, in March of 2007, he revealed to his 23-year-old daughter Amanda the details of his will and told her that she couldn't let her mother know what the terms were. Under no circumstances should my body be buried. I do not want a funeral, but a memorial service may be held in my family's discretion. Secrecy aside, this seems like a normal request, except for the fact that the Ivanses were Catholic, and the Catholic Church had only recently changed its views against cremation, and not all of the followers were comfortable with the idea, including Diane Ivans. If my remains are not cremated and my ashes are not scattered or spread on the ground, I give to Planned Parenthood of Maryland its successors or assigns the sum of $50,000. My personal representative shall either provide to the Orphan's Court of Frederick County, Maryland, or to the court having jurisdiction over my probate estate. Yeah, so, like, I don't know why the cremation was so, so, so important to him, but it seemed like he was, like, almost trying to make a pointed attack against his wife, because not only are they Catholic, but Diane Ivins was the leader of the Frederick County Right to Life, and... Oh! Yeah! Oh. Yeah, so this is very, like, you better do this or I'm going to, like, kind of publicly embarrass your, you. And, and like, give money to your, like, mortal enemy. Yeah, like. yeah, Okay, yeah. I was wondering, I was wondering what it was. Or, like, I knew it was something, like, yeah, I'm giving it to Planned Parenthood. The Catholics hate Planned Parenthood, but I didn't realize that it was more personal than that. Yeah, it really does seem more personal to to me than that. And, like, she would only find this out after he died because he wants this to be a secret. So she's going to, like, find his will and be like, what the fuck is this? You right. Know? And Bruce didn't explain any of his reasoning about these changes and these, like, very aggressive, like, demands. He didn't explain any of this to Amanda when he told her about the changes but she thought you know whatever it's kind of weird but he's just preparing for something that's like not gonna happen for a while he's letting mm. me know about it but like this is a down the road thing like bruce is only 61 years old at this point so she doesn't think she has to worry on november 1st 2007 fbi agents questioned him at work primarily focusing on the samples they believed he deliberately submitted incorrectly followed by the false sample in 2002 both of these submissions were seen as obstructions to the investigation and proof that Ivans could not be trusted, as he had been by agents on the case over the years. And there were a lot of agents kind of like cycling through, so it's new agents at this mm. point. And they're finally on the uptick and like, yeah, yeah mm -hmm. this guy. Keep an eye on him. 
So that same night, they raided the Ivan's house while he was still at work, without the media frenzy that accompanied the raid of Hatfield's home in 2002. For the past several months, interviews with his friends and colleagues were conducted with more focus than before, Ivanson's trash was searched, and the GPS device was installed on his car. It had taken six years to get to the point of issuing a warrant to search Ivans's home and vehicles, in part because the investigation had gotten derailed in focusing on Stephen Hatfield. 9,100 interviews had been conducted in that time, and 67 searches were carried out, but the science also needed time to mature. The study of the morphology led to a conclusive DNA connection between the anthrax letters and RMR-1029. Of the 1,070 samples they received from 18 labs in four countries, only eight of them matched the anthrax in the letters, which backed up their findings. These eight samples descended from RMR-1029. Seven of them were samples submitted from U.S. AMRID, and the eighth sample was a sample sent from Battelle that had originally been sent from U.S. AMRID. Although Paul Keim has done his best to try and contextualize these findings by pointing out that these similar morphologies could have come from parallel evolutions of the strains rather than because they had all originated in RMR-1029, so they could be more like cousins than like direct descendants. Gotcha. More research would need to be conducted to rule out this possibility, but the investigation didn't want more time. And the FBI was not interested in other possibilities, and so they interpreted these findings as the smoking gun. Now that they had the source of the murder weapon, or so they thought, they were able mm -hmm. to focus in on possible perpetrators who had access to this specific flask. The people at Battelle were eliminated as suspects because they either didn't have the ability to handle anthrax and purify it like the material in the letters, or they physically could not have been near the mailbox in the time period mm. when the letters were dropped. The mailbox was closer to U.S. Ambridge, so there were more possibilities for employees there to be suspects. But again, they still needed to find an individual without a solid alibi for the time period during the mailing and who could purify anthrax. They also examined unusual behavior that would point to an insider threat at U.S. AMRID. And this is something that they tell people with security clearances that they look for to make sure you're not going to be like a, a Chelsea Manning or something like that. Mm -hmm. They were looking for somebody who was working odd hours to get a side project done, behaving strangely, or asking odd questions. In this regard, Bruce Ivins basically had a sign over his head pointing in bright Literally. neon lights. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> Three weeks before the letters were mailed, and for 12 consecutive nights beginning on August 31, 2001, Bruce Ivins worked alone in the hot suite. For the last three days of this period, he worked in the hot suite for almost eight hours total, late at night, from 8 to midnight almost every night. This ended on Sunday, September 16th, the night before the letters were sent. A similar pattern was seen in his logged hours in October leading up to the receipt of the letters in the Senate building. And none of this was part of a normal flow for Ivins's work. Since the installation of this security system in 1998, Ivins had never worked this many late nights. <laughs> the raid uncovered Ivins's guns his electronic detection device and a computer software for tracking his emails, as well as a large collection of letters that Ivans had sent to members of Congress and the news media dating back to 1987. 
like, does it get any more like see like when i read this i was like i'm literally reading a report on the doj website so like grain of salt with some of it you know like i don't sure. want to put on a full like tin hat but like grain of salt and i was like did he really though did he really have those and then as i was reading the book that i read on it the mirage man he was describing like the content of the letters and things like that and i was like oh no he did he really wrote these letters yeah like, yeah he actually did it he was that guy so they find all of this stuff but after the raid they're still not done because now they're like we've put pressure on him and if we didn't find anything, there's a good chance that he's going to want to eliminate things that we might find in another raid. So the FBI suspected that anything he might be worried about would end up in the trash. And on trash day following the raid, they searched through his bins and they found a book titled Girdle, Escher, and Bach, An Eternal Golden Braid, which discusses DNA coding and coded messages. And he also threw out an article on the grammatical structures of genetic code. Why is that important? We will see in a bit. <laughs> okay. So on January 16th, 2008, Ivans and his lawyer met with FBI agents at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. During the interview, they asked Ivans to tell them about his interest in the sorority Kappa Kappa Gamma, which he clarified, it's not an interest, it's an obsession. Not a good look. No, no. Less look. is more in these types mm -hmm. of interviews. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He then admitted to breaking into the houses of the Chapel Hill and Morgantown chapters of Kappa Kappa Gamma in the late 70s and stealing the cipher they used to write their ritual materials, as well as their book of ritual. He then copied the book and mailed it to a KKG chapter in West Virginia. He then admitted to stealing Nancy Hagwood's lab notebook back in 1978, just like she suspected he had, writing the letter to the newspaper in her name that got quoted in the book on sorority hazing, vandalizing the fence outside of her home, and renting the post office box under her now ex-husband's name, and a slew of other things that I have no fucking idea why he would have admitted to him, unless... This is the FBI, you know, reporting that he said some of these things. Mm. Like, a lot of these things are corroborated elsewhere, but some of them I'm like, why the fuck would you say that? Why would you say that? Like, literally, why would you? Like, it's not an interest. It's an obsession. Yeah. Oh. Why? <laughs> why? Literally, why? Like, yeah, I don't know. <sighs> I don't know. Okay. So on March 17th, Ivans violated yet another lab safety measure at U.S. Amrid when he spilled non-lethal anthrax onto his pants and then walked home to clean up, because he lived really close, before informing his supervisor of what happened. At this point, he had already lost hot sweet privileges, but now this causes him to lose access to all lab facilities. And as a lab researcher, this basically put him on desk duty and limited his functions to administrative duties only. Indefinitely. Like, mm. your lab career is over. Over. Yeah. The next day, Diane Ivins found Bruce unconscious upstairs in their home. She called 911 and told dispatch that she suspected he'd taken too much Valium, which he'd been prescribed for anxiety, although it could have been the sleeping pills he was on, she clarified. 
She also told them that she believed alcohol was a factor. As a registered nurse, she held no delusions for what Bruce had done and recognized it as a suicide attempt. And she was right. Bruce had even attempted to calculate the amount of alcohol and pills needed to kill a 160-pound individual such as himself. While he was in the hospital, she requested that Bruce's psychiatrist take him off Ambien and Lunesta because they seemed to impair his judgment. First of all, you don't need both. <laughs> no. That's like a um, an either-or, not an yeah, end. Yeah, for real. Just yeah. saying. I mean, Just Ambien saying. itself is already like, whew. Whew. I know, you don't need the little butterfly Lunesta, too. Mm-mm. You don't need her, too. No. In April, Ivan's entered rehab for alcohol abuse. There, he celebrated his 62nd birthday. After a week, he left and started a different alcohol treatment program at a psychiatric hospital, where he stayed for a month. When he returned home from treatment on May 19, 2008, he still had a job at U.S. Amrid, but he didn't have lab privileges, so he discussed retiring in September when his government pension would begin. But the FBI wasn't going to let Ivans quietly retire. Although he'd been lucky enough to never have been named in the media like Stephen Hatfield had, the investigation against him continued. On June 5, 2008, Ivans met with his former lab technician, Patricia Fellows, for coffee. He emailed her often and seemed to kind of hate her, actually. Like, there was a couple of women that he emailed, and I was like, why are you letting this guy email you? Like, yeah. he doesn't seem to like you. He's kind of a misogynist against you. Mm-hmm. He was, like, openly passive-aggressive towards her. He accused her of being the center of the letters at one point. <laughs> because why, why not? not? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And while she worked at U.S. Amride, he had stolen her password and hacked into her email to spy on her and see what she was saying about him in her emails. The FBI knew that Patricia was still in communication with Bruce, and so they asked her to meet with him while wearing a wire. So during their conversation over coffee, Bruce alluded to having an alternate personality that acted without him knowing. And he said he couldn't be totally sure that it wasn't him who sent the anthrax letters. He also told Fellows, quote, My lawyers have told me that an indictment is coming and I should be prepared to face the death penalty. Ooh. Yeah. Four days later, at an off-the-record meeting with the FBI in which his lawyer was present, Ivans was interviewed to show he could be completely honest and to prevent an indictment from ever coming his way, no matter what he said. So they were trying to be like, give us as much information as we can so that we can try to investigate elsewhere and you won't be punished for anything that you tell us. Because if you if you don't give us more information, we are going to indict you. Like, that is what is coming. It was at this meeting that the agents who had found the book on code and genetics finally played their ace card. They got Ivan's talking about New York, which he hated. He hated how rude people were in New York because he'd visited once and there was, like, a rude waitress. He hated the Yankees. And when Ivans was fully riled up about how much he hated New York, they showed him a copy of the Tom Brokaw letter. We're going to put this letter up on social media so that everybody can see what we're talking about. But it does kind of look like some of the A's and the T's in the letter are bolded. Mm, Even though they're written in, like, pencil, right? It does. For everyone who didn't suffer through biology, there are only four nucleic acids present in DNA, represented by the letters G, C, T, and A. Now, 
they did kind of lose me here when I was watching the documentary The Anthrax Attacks because this felt like a stretch. The DOJ report supports that Ivan's knew about coding with nucleic acids because of this email from July 2000 that he sent. Biopersonals. I have single-stranded too long. Lonely ATGCATG would like to pair up with congenial TACGTAG. And I like if you're driving, of course, you're just like, what the fuck did you just say? That was a ton of like letters. But this doesn't mean anything. This doesn't necessarily mean that he understands coding. This is just a forwarded chain. And the joke is that a single strand is RNA and the DNA is double stranded and is connected by the G's mm. and C's and T's. Mm-hmm. And G's can only connect to C's and T's can only connect to A's. And so it's just showing I'm looking for somebody who fits that pattern. This is my pattern I'm looking for. Right? So it's not uh, showing he understands code. Right? No. He just made a biology joke. Right. Or attempted. But the FBI believed that the order of the bolded T's and A's in the Brokaw letter, including an A, which is inappropriately jammed into the word penicillin, it translates. I was wondering why you spelled it wrong earlier in the thing, but now it makes total sense because I was like, she wouldn't spell that wrong. Right. (laughs) But now it makes total sense. Yeah. So they believed that this translated to three new letters based on nucleic codons, which code for specific amino acids. So in order, if you say T-T-A-A-T-T-A-T, that translates to nucleic acids that have the letters either P-A-T or F-N-Y, which they translated to either reference Patricia Fellows or F-N-Y is fuck New York. And like, okay. this seems like a stretch, right? This seems like a total stretch. It does stretch. seem like a stretch. It and like, you have like to, stretch. you have to just do so much, like looking at this and being like, okay, I guess only T's and A's are kind of bolded, even though some of the, I mean, the it O's does look bolded. I mean, it does look that way. Like, like I do see. I, yeah, I see about. it. And like, but co- not all of the A's are bolded, and so it's like, well, because because he only needed say, a certain number. He only needed a certain number, and of he them? wants it to be in a certain order to get this codon oh. right. And codons are a thing. And like, the only reason that I kind of believe this, even though it seems like such a stretch, because you have to be like, well, it's either P A T or F N Y, is because he did throw out that Girdle Escher Bach book, which was about coding and DNA. And, like, why else would he have thrown it out? You know, like, they weren't going to catch it. It wasn't suspicious, but if he felt like it was suspicious because of coding. Right. I mean, I see both sides. Yeah, I totally, do. See, I, totally. see, I see both sides because the, if if he hadn't have thrown away the book, mm-hmm. if he hadn't maybe not a big away, deal. I, I don't think they would have noticed if he hadn't thrown no, away the book. I don't think so either. But also, even with this, it's like FNY. Like, it just happens to be FNY, and you're like... Well, and, like, why is that such... Like, why is he going through such great lengths to hide a message that says, fuck New York? Like, why not just say, in his letter, when he's saying, death to America? Right. Why not just say, fuck New York? Right. (laughs) Like, Like... I don't know. And, like, they, the book I read had a lot more, like, showing his emails and, like, saying that the people in New York were just being, like, really melodramatic following the Trade Center t- attacks. And, like, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot that's just, like, there's certain towns I don't like. Does that mean I, I'm going to, like, 
I don't know, you know? Make code and while I'm also having like a bioterror attack, like Yeah, and it's not, not even like it's not even a meaningful code to no. have. It's almost as meaningful as like, let's go <laughs> what's what did the fucking conservatives say? Let, oh, fuck, let's, let's go, go Brandon. Brandon. Yeah. And it's like, it's not even like an interesting code, it's you know? Not. It doesn't mean anything. So for it to no. end up meaning fuck New York is like, what okay, does that mean? big whoop. <laughs> like, okay, so fuck New York. Cool. Yeah. Like, so. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. But this is what they have and this is what they present to really try to make him sweat. And this interview, it lasts for three hours. Like, it includes mm. this. It lasts for three hours. And afterwards, Ivans did not feel good as about his prospects as a suspect, even if it had been off the record. Like, he doesn't feel like he's any further away from being indicted. There's no way he's not going to trial for this. You know, they're accusing him of killing five people in 2001 in a terror attack. Like, right. And so representation for such a case by his current lawyer was going to cost him around $2 million. And this is more than all of Ivins's combined assets. The U.S. District Court judge in Washington actually recommended that the lawyer represent Ivins at taxpayer expense, but that still wasn't going to do a whole lot to lighten the load. Right. So following this, Ivins' struggles with alcohol returned with a vengeance. Like, why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. And he had a brother that he was kind of close to at this point. And the brother reaches out to him to suggest getting away for a while and taking a trip to the Canadian Rockies. But Bruce told him that leaving the country was going to cause too many problems. So he just kind of feels stuck where he is. On July 9th, 2008, Ivans told the members of the group therapy he'd been attending since leaving the hospital in May that he intended to get revenge on the people who'd wronged him over the course of the Amerithrax investigation, including colleagues at U.S. AMRED. He said he had a list of people he wanted to kill and was in possession of a bulletproof vest already, but still needed to get a Glock. Then he said, I'm not going down for five capital murders. I'm going to get them all. So his counselor contacts his lawyer after the session. <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm like, oh. Yikes. Yeah. It, yikes. Yikes, yikes, yikes. Mandatory reporting at work. <laughs> yeah. And then the lawyer contacts the Frederick police, and as a courtesy, the police contacted the FBI. So very quickly, everybody's like, did you hear what Bruce said? <laughs> Around 2 p.m. the next day, Ivans was pulled from his desk at U.S. Amrid into the conference room to meet with a team of officers from Frederick PD to discuss the threats he'd made and was then escorted from the building to Frederick Memorial Hospital for psychiatric evaluation, which landed him in a psychiatric hospital outside of Baltimore. It was only upon admission to this hospital that his current counselor looked far enough back into his history to find he had admitted to a counselor in 2000 that he'd planned to poison a colleague named Mara Lynn Scott and had also purchased ammonium nitrate to make a bomb. If you say something like that, Mm-hmm. Usually, confidentiality no longer applies. Mm-hmm. So why was that not reported? Who knows? Who okay. knows? Yeah, Just I don't know. Me. Like, yeah, it should have been reported. And, like, I don't know if he necessarily told his counselor that he had a security clearance. But 
if it came up, they would have definitely had to report that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So another raid on Ivans' house confirmed that he did actually have all of the items he mentioned during his outburst in therapy, including a bulletproof vest, homemade body armor, 236 rounds of ammunition, 17 rounds of 40 caliber hollow point bullets, and a canister of smokeless handgun powder. So agents looking at this cache assumed he'd been planning a siege on U.S. Amrid. Back at the hospital, he now seemed resigned to whatever his fate may be now. His lawyer pleaded with the doctors there to keep him there longer because he worried that Ivan's was a danger to himself, but the hospital released him as planned. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. The FBI also urged doctors to keep Ivan's longer because they believed he was a danger to his most recent counselor. They were also unable to convince the hospital to hold him for any longer, but they did help the counselor successfully get a protective order against Ivan's, who claimed in court that he was a, quote, revenge killer forensically diagnosed by several top psychiatrists as a sociopathic homicidal killer. But, like, he, he's not doing well, and he's, you know, probably been honest in therapy up to this point. But, like, mm-hmm. also, he hasn't gone to trial, you know. Unless he's admitted, I did kill five people. It just seems a little bit unfair to say he's a revenge killer and a homicidal killer when he hasn't gone to trial. Unless he's explicitly admitted to that in therapy and there's no evidence of that. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. On July 24th, 2008, Bruce Ivins returned home. He went to the grocery store to pick up a couple items, including Tylenol PM, and then went and filled his prescriptions for Celexa, Seroquel, and Depakote. The entire time, he was being tailed by FBI agents, who then followed him to a library in Frederick, where he used the public computers to check his email accounts and read about the developments in the anthrax case. His own personal computers were seized in the last federal raid on his home, which is why he's using the library. Ivans was weary and withdrawn, claiming to suffer from terrible headaches, but still making calls to his daughter and planning meetings with his attorney for the following week. But in the early morning hours of Sunday, July 27th, his wife Diane woke up and went to check on Bruce as he slept. He wasn't in his bedroom. Instead, she found him sprawled out in front of the toilet, breathing but unresponsive and cool to the touch. Ivan's arrived to the hospital by ambulance at 1.47 a.m., and by 8 a.m., he was stable and conscious enough to answer yes or no questions. He admitted that this was another suicide attempt and then began trying to remove his tubes, including the one administering acetidote for his acetaminophen overdose, and so he was restrained by his wrists and ankles. Ivan's remained at least somewhat conscious and alert on occasion, but he'd done serious damage to his organs with the Tylenol and was suffering acute kidney failure. When Diane was informed of his poor condition on July 28th, she chose not to put him on kidney dialysis or to put him on the organ donor list for a possible liver transplant because, she said, quote, Bruce did not wish to live in this manner. And at 3.08 p.m., he was placed on a DNR. By morning on July 29th, Ivans no longer responded to his name and was yellow with jaundice. He fell into a coma and died at 10.47 a.m. A memorial service was held for Bruce Ivans on August 9, 2008, and his cremains were scattered on a land in western Maryland, according to his final wishes. 
Although the main person of interest in the Amerithrax investigation was dead, the investigation itself continued. Just two days after Ivans' death, FBI investigators once again dug through his household trash. Diane Ivans continued to pay Bruce's lawyer to defend him as an innocent man, and they maintained to the media that the evidence did not prove that he was the perpetrator of the anthrax killings. The FBI officially closed the Amerithrax case on February 19, 2010, after following over 5,000 leads and spending more than $10 million. It was their conclusion, concurrent with the DOJ and the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, that Dr. Bruce Ivins alone mailed the anthrax letters. Stephen Hatfield won $5.82 million when the FBI settled his suit against them in 2008. Brentwood Postal Facility was renamed the Kersine Morris Mail Sorting Center on December 5, 2003, in honor of Thomas L. Morris, Jr. and Joseph P. Kersine, Jr., Employees at the facility filed a class action lawsuit against USPS, alleging officials knew the anthrax contaminated the facility, but the case was dismissed. I don't know if I if I agree with that one. One should have been should have been not dismissed. Should have gone to them. Yeah. Yeah. That one should have gone. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Yeah. In 2011, the government settled a wrongful death suit with the family of Robert Stevens, the first victim of the attacks. They paid the family $2.5 million, but denied negligence on behalf of Fort Detrick and the alleged acts of Bruce Ivins. Stevens' family argued that security was lax at the facility, such that if Ivins wasn't the perpetrator, it was still easy enough for any one of their employees to have been the perpetrator with access to Ames strain spores. However, they also argue that if Ivins was the perpetrator, his access to deadly pathogens should have been revoked as a part of the requirements for maintaining a security clearance. Meanwhile, the government argued that under the Federal Tort Claims Act, taxpayers are not liable for unpredictable violent behavior from a federal employee. And during all of this, the government was making far-reaching decisions for the country based on fear and misinformation. The USA Patriot Act, legislation which allows the government to eavesdrop on the communications of suspected terrorists, was passed in October 2001 with a vote of 98 to 1 in the Senate and signed into law by President Bush after the anthrax attacks were invoked alongside discussions of the terror attacks on 9-11 and other possible threats to national security. And although there does appear to be a strong case against Bruce Ivins, including information corroborated by individuals outside of the FBI and DOJ, and the consideration for motive including the revival of his lab's research from the brink of death to utmost importance for national security, not everyone is convinced that he was the perpetrator. Hmm. In a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing at the Hart Building on September 17, 2008, Senator Leahy said, if Bruce Ivins is the one who sent the letter, I do not believe in any way, shape, or manner that he is the only person involved in this attack on Congress and the American people. I do not believe it that at all. I believe there are others involved, either as accessories before or accessories after the fact. I believe there are others out there. I believe there are others who can be charged with murder. Paul Keim is also not convinced that the perpetrator was Bruce Ivins. Look, you've got to go back and figure out what the circumstantial evidence that pointed towards Bruce Ivins, because the science did not point to Bruce Ivins. It pointed to RMR 1029. And Bruce's connection to RMR 1029 was something that was established by totally different methods. 
He also thinks that, innocent or guilty, Bruce Ivan's suicide came as a response to constant years-long investigation from the FBI. Although he hadn't had his name in headlines like Hatfield had, both men were driven to their wit's end by suspicion and surveillance. During the same Senate Judiciary hearing where Senator Leahy spoke, FBI Director Robert Mueller indicated that the FBI intended to seek an independent review of the scientific evidence, quote, because of the importance of the science to this particular case and perhaps cases in the future, unquote. This review was published by the National Academies of Sciences in February 2011, which found that more research was needed in some areas of the FBI's research because their internal scientific findings were inconsistent. The so-called weaponized silicon was not actually weaponized, but the presence of silicon in the letters and the lack of it in RMR 1029 meant that, quote, Letter samples could not have been taken directly from the flask. A separate growth preparation would have been required, unquote. And that, quote, the genetic evidence that a disputed sample submitted by Bruce Ivins came from a source other than RMR 1029 was weaker than stated, unquote, in the DOJ's report, such that it is possible that the incorrect sample, the quote-unquote incorrect sample that was submitted by Bruce Ivins originally in, like, 2002, wasn't submitted incorrectly. They just had a protocol that was very easy to follow verbatim and not do correctly according to science. And we cannot determine which one it was. We can't say with 100% certainty which one it was. Overall, the panel determined that the investigation did not definitively demonstrate that the spores were grown from RMR 1029, merely that they were consistent with and support an association. Zooming out to the bigger picture, the Bush administration was convinced in 2002 that the anthrax threat was an external one and publicly stated that Saddam Hussein's regime had nuclear weapons and bioweapons capable of killing millions. It was based on this belief that Bush requested permission to go to war with Iraq, and that permission mm. was granted on October 11, 2002, by the Senate with a vote of 77 to 23, and by the House with a vote of 296 to 133. Secretary of State Colin Powell defended the United States' decision to the United Nation in February 2003 by holding up a small vial of powder meant to symbolize anthrax and explaining how less than a teaspoon of dry anthrax shut down the U.S. Senate in the fall of 2001, and Saddam Hussein was believed to have enough liquid anthrax to create tens of thousands of teaspoons of dry powder. And yet, he presented this despite the fact that U.S. researchers had concluded that the anthrax used in the letters was the AIM strain, and there was no evidence that Iraq had any amount of that particular strain. Remember, too, that five days before intentions of war were publicly announced, Bruce Ivins received the Decoration for Exceptional Civilian Service for his work on the anthrax vaccine. Powell would admit in 2004 that the intelligence which he'd based his defense on for the UN was wrong, and that there was no biological, chemical, or nuclear weapons found in Iraq. Because in 2004, U.S. agents went overseas three times to facilities they'd been told had an operating anthrax program specifically, and their swabbing yielded negative culture results. At best, Powell was uncertain about the basis for declaring a war on Iraq in 2002, which cost $750 billion and resulted in the death of 185,000 Iraqi people 
the displacement of two million more, and the death of 4,500 Americans. And at worst, he was taking advantage of a terrible attack on the American people that was not properly investigated and was only helping to perpetrate distracting conspiracy theories. And although talk of weaponized anthrax was spoken about in the media, the fact that Sandia National Laboratories proved in 2002 that the anthrax in the letters was not chemically altered to be weaponized did not make headlines. This may have been something the public would have been interested in knowing to keep tabs on the state of national security and the possible involvement, now decidedly less possible, of al-Qaeda or Iraq. These statements were taken back somewhat quietly following Ivins's suicide in 2008, although the DOJ maintains that the anthrax was weaponized. What do you think? What do you personally think? Like, do I think that Ivins did it? Yeah. I think that the circumstantial evidence is pretty strong, but I also have that little tin hat part of me that's like, it took them seven years to get to that point. Right. And, and it seemed pretty obvious if they if it was like yeah I don't know like and I mean sure it's hard to figure out who it is when you have you know several facilities that have the strain and several hundred people who work at the facilities and you have to narrow it down to one but it also just seems like in some ways so convenient you know the the, the way that things lined up like that I, I oh do it's put RMR ten twenty nine yeah so that, I know I mean, how to identify the strains and it is this one yeah yeah I mean I do like to put on my tinfoil hat I think that there I mean I do think that there's some reasonable doubt I think that there's definitely reasonable doubt like I think there's reasonable doubt and I like and so as as much as it lines up, and I'd like to say, like, yeah. And I and I agree with what I think it was, Kaim? Yeah. That said that he thinks that he killed himself not because of guilt, but because of the pressure Yeah, that I mean, the FBI put. Like, that's totally possible. Like, plausible. Yeah. Totally plausible. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, oh. whether or not he was guilty, like... When you have a bunch of pressure on you, you're going to make mistakes, you know, and like going home when you've spilled anthrax on you is not a good decision to make, but he was clearly not thinking very clearly. No, was... and it seems like he had like he had his own substance issues, substance and... issues and psychiatric battles that he mm-hmm. was fighting. So he had a lot on his plate, but I also maintain that he is a certified creep. So Totally. Totally a like, certified creep. Yeah. Like 100%. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's I a think... good one, but very interesting. Like, this was a really good one to deep dive on because, again, I was aware of this when I was younger and in high mm-hmm. school, but had zero idea about the the latter part of the case. Yeah. Like... Yeah, well, and it just really shaped so much of, like, what the environment was, what the atmosphere mm-hmm. was in the early 2000s that, like, I knew about the Patriot Act and, like, obviously mm-hmm. the Iraq War. Like, you know, I was right. cognizant of all of that, but I didn't realize how much the anthrax case that turned out to be, like, an internal terrorist attack thing, like, how much that helped to shape it. yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, I'm glad I deep-dived it just so I can, like, as an individual, be more informed about it. Yeah, very interesting. (laughs) Very interesting one. Thank you. And 
totally, totally not what I thought anthrax was. I did not think that it was like a bacteria or anything like that. Yeah. Totally not <laughs> what I thought it was. So yeah, very cool to learn. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Bina Stainetko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison.